You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and with me today is Dr. Dave Dixon. He's a clinical pharmacist and associate professor of pharmacotherapy at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. Dave is also a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist, a clinical lipid specialist, and most importantly, a fellow of the National Lipid Association. He serves as a regional representative for the Southeast chapter of the NLA and serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Clinical Lipidology. So Dave, great to see all your efforts within the Lipid Association, and I'm particularly grateful that you took time today during a busy meeting to come and talk to us. Sure. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. I enjoy the podcast all the time. Thank you. So today our focus is going to be on triglyceride-lowering therapies. And this is a very interesting topic because in terms of looking at clinical outcome trials, reducing cardiovascular events by treating triglycerides, the data is pretty obtuse. And as I know you have pointed out, the guidelines kind of recommended previous literature but gave no specific recommendations except to avoid pancreatitis, which was when they're over 500 tree, right? So why don't you tell us a little bit about what are the current recommendations and where the gaps are and share your wisdom with us. Sure. If you go back, really in terms of guidance, you'd have to go back to the 2011 American Heart Association scientific statement on triglycerides. And it was a really important document. I think it really brought together excellent thought leaders in in that topic area. It really highlighted and emphasized the importance of diet, lifestyle change. And in that guideline, drug therapy was sort of withheld or recommended to be withheld until the triglycerides exceeded 500. We fast forward to 2016, and essentially it's pretty much the same. If we look at our 2013 ACC and AHA guideline, they essentially punted the concept of going into triglycerides and referred back to that statement. So fortunately, I think our NLA recommendations at least provide a little bit of context for practicing clinicians as to when to really consider triglyceride-lowering therapies. Yeah, and they focus on non-HDL for those. So over 500, avoiding pancreatitis is a no-brainer, right? Absolutely. But then in the higher-risk individuals, particularly those with established atherosclerosis, then non-HDL has been a concept that really wasn't delved into by the ACCHA guidelines. Right. Probably because there haven't been any randomized trials of using non-HDL as a target of therapy. Right. But they did bring the concept up in the NLA recommendations. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about non-HDL and how we sure. might look at that? Yeah, so it's it's quite clear that in patients with high triglycerides that non-HDL is really a better predictor of risk in those patients. And so we're dealing with an obesity epidemic as well as the increase in cases of diabetes. And so in clinic, particularly in my practice, you know, I see a lot of those patients who have that moderately elevated triglyceride high levels of non-HDL cholesterol. And that's really where there seems to be some opportunity for some of the non-statin drugs that lower triglycerides to really offer some benefit in terms of reducing the overall atherogenic burden. With the NLA recommendations for those patients that have triglycerides between the 200, 250 mark on up to 500, it's still statin first. And then clearly looking at the non-HDL as a target of therapy and really trying to identify those patients that the statins fall short, and then trying to add something like a fibrate or possibly omega-3 fatty acids, but really looking at therapies to further reduce non-HDL cholesterol. You could also throw ezetimibe in there, of course, obviously not a potent triglyceride-lowering drug. And then for those patients where triglycerides are between 500 but below 1,000, the NLA recommendation suggests that 
in patients without a prior history of pancreatitis, that it would be reasonable to start high-intensity statins. We have to remember that statins can lower triglycerides by as much as up to 30% at high dose. In those patients, however, that have a history of pancreatitis, our fibrates and omega-3 fatty acids remain sort of a first-line therapy. And then obviously those folks are 1,000. It's, it's definitely a no-brainer to go with the fibrate or omega-3 fatty acid first. So you gave actually several pearls that I hope our audience heard. You know, number one, at all patients for risk for cardiovascular disease, we've got, and in particularly the low HDL high triglyceride patients who are at the highest risk, they respond with statins and they get a reduction in risk. That's been proven. In fact, that drove many of the statin trials. A lot of people don't realize that. But then the second piece was if there's modest triglyceride elevation between 2 and 500, that once you've put them on a statin and saw what the numbers look like, lifestyle would be the next attempt. And you made that point. I just want to reemphasize it because I think that's a hugely important point. Triglycerides are much more responsive to lifestyle modification than LDL, for example, right? Absolutely. And triglycerides fluctuate you know, throughout the day. And they respond very well to lifestyle change, reducing carbohydrates, in particular simple sugars, and just simply moving your body. And that's something that we push our patients a lot to do. They get hung up on the triglyceride number being elevated, and we encourage them. That's something they can do something about. Sure. And then the 2013 guideline writing group, they struggled because we had a couple of recent studies adding niacin or adding fibrates to a statin. And when the patient's already on a statin with a very low LDL, we're unable to show, whether that be study design or lack of efficacy, we were just unable to show any incremental benefit. So that, again, would push you towards lifestyle before you... I I was hearkening to the days when we used to put everybody on procainamide for a PVC (laughs) in my younger years, and we found out that actually increased the risk of people. So now, now we're more thoughtful, and this may be a situation where thoughtfulness is valuable, correct? I agree. If you're just tuning in, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and with me today is Dr. Dave Dixon, clinical pharmacist and associate professor of pharmacotherapy at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. We're talking about treatment of hypertriglyceridemia. So for the people that we would be thinking of pharmacotherapy, which would be people either over 500 or people, as you eloquently pointed out, who had been started on a statin, and despite their best efforts, their non-HDL remained elevated, according to our NLA recommendations, then you'd be thinking about therapy. How do you make a decision which therapy to start, phenofibrate versus omega-3 fatty acids? Give us your insights on that. Looking at this from a pharmacist perspective, you know, right away we're looking at, typically, of course, we're recommending phenofibrate over gemfibrozil in, in most cases, clearly. And with phenofibrate, we've got a once-daily medication. It's very easy to take, and for most patients, it's quite tolerable. Compared to the omega-3 fatty acid products, even if you're using the prescription product, you're looking at, you know, two to four capsules a day, very large capsules. And there are some common side effects, dyspepsia, belching, and things that patients can experience that sometimes can limit their use. As far as data showing that these drugs reduce the risk of pancreatitis, I think also separates it a little bit. So phenofibrate, we do have at least a little bit of data suggesting a reduction in the outcome we're trying to achieve. Whereas with omega-3 fatty acids, that data is fairly sparse. Yeah, and it probably depends on the cause of the hypertriglyceridemia. Exactly, and alcohol seems to be number one, and so trying to figure out how do you study those patients can be challenging. On the topic of omega-3 fatty acids, my patients always ask me, is it okay to take over the counter or should I take prescription brand? My theory, my philosophy, the reason FDA approved the prescription brand is because the results are fairly predictable and also that they're distilled so they don't get the fishy smell, the fishy belching and everything else. But even with the generic forms, they can still be fairly expensive. So 
Now that I've told you my thoughts, let's hear yours. How do you deal with that over-the-counter versus prescription brand? Sure. That question comes up quite frequently in practice, and fish oil is not the same as omega-3 fatty acids, and that's usually the starting point from educating you know, our patients and other providers. Fish oil is a dietary supplement. If you look at those the tablets and capsules available over-the-counter, very limited actual amount of EPA and DHA, which are the real ingredients that drive the reduction in triglycerides and offer some potential benefit. You can find some over-the-counter products that have a higher amount of EPA and DHA, but these patients will often have to take six, eight, sometimes even 12 capsules. So clearly that actually becomes quite expensive for patients. The other thing that I hear a lot is the, the new fad now is creole oil. And if you actually look the bottle of krill oil, you're looking at less than 100 milligrams in most cases of EPA and DHA. And then, of course, because of that fishy smell, gummies, uh, the fish gummies are now quite popular. I usually advise patients it's more likely to cause cavities than actually help lower the triglycerides. Because of the minuscule amount of EPA and DHA. Correct. So you are, you are a proponent of sticking with prescription brand if you can. I am reliable. And if, if you have a patient where costs are, is, is an absolute issue, there are some products over the counter that have decent amount of EPA and DHA that look for that USP sticker. So United States Pharmacopeia, you at least know that there's a little bit of certainty that the product is more pure and, and, and accurately reflected on the label. I'm hopeful since now at least one of the prescription brands has been generic for many months that we're going to see the price go down pretty significantly in the near term. Exactly. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about this. I think you've really helped our audience, uh, many of whom are not lipidologists, to figure out how to approach hypertriglyceridemia, one of those elusive things that people commonly ask about. So can't thank you enough for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Alan. You've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Please visit reachmd.com slash lipids where you can listen to this podcast as well as others in the series. And please make sure to leave your comments. It's very important to us to get your feedback. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown for ReachMD, and remember, be part of the knowledge.